Acts 1, 6 through 11. <clears throat> so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, we uh, are beginning a new series. So what we, where, we, where we're coming from is we just wrapped up a series on the crucifixion which went up through Good Friday, the day that Jesus died. And then last week was Easter, uh, so we celebrated the resurrection. And now we are moving into a series on the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, depending on which gospel you're reading. And we are, uh, the series is called Your Kingdom Come, which you can tell by the graphic. You can tell just by looking at it. And there's... Oh, the reason that we're moving into this series at this time is because what Jesus was doing on the cross with his resurrection is establishing a new kingdom. Oftentimes, we aren't able to connect what happened on the cross to Jesus's preaching ministry, which was made up uh, almost entirely of talking about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It's sort of strange where we look at Jesus's teaching and it's all about kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about the whole time. He says, I've come to preach. My mission is to come and preach the kingdom. When he starts, he announces that the kingdom has arrived. And then when most of us speak about the gospel, we can pretty much make it through a whole gospel presentation without once mentioning the kingdom. So these things are somehow disconnected in our minds. The kingdom and the gospel, what happens on the cross in the center of Jesus' preaching message. So my hope in this series is that we're going to take a long look at the kingdom. It's actually not that long, just six weeks. And we're going to be focusing in on what was Jesus teaching with regards to the kingdom, and how does that connect to us today? You see, when we are looking uh, to understand what, it, what are we seeking when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of heaven? What is the thing that we are called to be seeking first? What is this hope that we have of this kingdom that will one day come into the world? What are we looking forward to? If we don't know what we're looking forward to, what we're hoping to bring into the world, what we're bearing witness to, then we won't really understand our mission as a church, why we're here today to spread the news of the kingdom. So my hope is that by looking at the kingdom, we're going to understand more clearly what our mission is as a church here today in Denver, so that we might see more answers to this prayer that we know so well, 
praying that your kingdom might come, that his kingdom might come. So that's where we are, and we're going to pick up right exactly where we left off, right after Easter. See, last week, if you were with us, or if you weren't, it was Easter Sunday, and so you were likely somewhere, and at that time, we were celebrating the resurrection. But there's a part of this story that connects directly to the kingdom that we often neglect, and it's what we're going to be looking at today. The structure of the series, so that you know, if you're like a very type A person, and you need to know where we're going. Uh, what we're heading towards is we're going to look today at the establishment of the kingdom by Jesus' ascension, and then we're going to be moving through Jesus' kingdom parables. So today sort of wraps up the story that we have been in this whole time, Then we're going to move back into Jesus' preaching ministry and be looking at his parables of describing the kingdom of heaven. So for today, we are looking at the kingdom. And if we start back where we were in the last series with Easter, you'll see that even the whole crucifixion story is peppered with uh, this language regarding a king, regarding a kingdom. So when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, the question that they ask him, the trial is dominated by this idea of him claiming to be king of the Jews. And so when they ask him if he is, he says that they will see him seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. See, this is kingdom language, seated at the right hand of power. Jesus is referring to himself as a king. And then later, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, the question that Pilate asks him is, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus, although vaguely, but if it's enough of an affirmative answer to seal his fate, uh, answers, you have said so. You see, there's this kingdom language throughout. Finally, Jesus is crucified, and what is above his head on a sign on the cross that he's crucified on, it says king of the Jews. So if you're looking to build a kingdom and you're going to get seed money for your kingdom, you're going to need to deliver a kingdom minimum viable product. And you're going to say, Mr. Wonderful, I need uh, money to start this kingdom. And he's going to say, all right, the two things that you need for a kingdom are thing one, a king. And thing two, you're going to need subjects. You have a king and you have subjects, boom, you got a kingdom. And uh, that's what we see happen on the cross. Jesus establishes his kingdom because he rescues for himself his people. He, brings, he makes himself king by bringing in us as his subjects. Those that he sought to rescue, he perfectly gathers and makes his subjects as king. So there's kingdom language all around this. So we see on the cross, he gathers his people. And then today, what we see is Jesus ascend to the throne. This ascension, him rising to the throne, rising to the right hand of power, literally floating up into heaven, which we'll get there. Uh, that is him moving into this position as king. You see, this is exactly in line with the whole narrative of Scripture as we've always seen. All of the covenants relate to this one promise of God saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. 
See, that is kingdom language. It's covenantal, relational language. And that's what we see established in the kingdom of heaven. God rescues for himself a people, and then he ascends to the throne to perfectly rule over them. Somehow, we're able, we think we're able to convey a gospel message without describing Jesus as king. But gospel means a proclamation, the good news that we're proclaiming there's a new king. So that's what we're going to be looking at as we explore the kingdom of heaven. So the gospel and the kingdom are not separate, but they are part of a story that is probably more grand than you have imagined until now. So first of all, we're going to look at how the kingdom is misunderstood. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at the ascension and then thirdly, we're going to be looking at how we are called to bear witness to the kingdom. So how we're misunderstanding it, the ascension itself, Jesus ascending to the throne, and then finally, how we're called to bear witness to the kingdom. So first, the misunderstood kingdom. Let's provide some context. So Jesus was resurrected, and then Acts 1-3 says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So we have this 40-day period after the resurrection where Jesus is moving around, and his ministry after the resurrection and before the resurrection are actually incredibly similar. They seem almost completely the same. He's traveling around just like he was before the resurrection, and he's preaching about the kingdom of God. The focus of his ministry is still the same. So these 40 days pass, and yet we see that even after all the preaching about the kingdom before the resurrection, all the preaching about the kingdom after the resurrection, the disciples are still unclear as to what the kingdom is, much like many of us today. So we can see their lack of clarity by this question that they ask, the beginning of our text in Acts 1-6. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So John Calvin says there are as many mistakes in that question as there are words, which isn't a glowing review. So let's move through them. First of all, the verb, restore. Are you going to restore the kingdom? What this means is the disciples are thinking of the kingdom as something that Israel had, likely at the height of its glory under Solomon, a political territorial empire. And it's something that they had, but something that has since been squandered. And evidence of it being squandered is their current occupation by Rome. And so when they are saying, will you restore the kingdom, they're saying, will you make it just like it was using the normal power structures of our day? They may consider something like, great, you've proven that you can resurrect yourself. So now we have an invincible leader. That will be the perfect thing to use to overthrow Rome. See, they aren't thinking of the kingdom in the way that Jesus is thinking of the kingdom. They are thinking of it as a restoring of political and territorial power to a particular group of people that has lost it. They haven't yet moved on or transcended the normal power structures of their day and of our day, the normal way of thinking about how a kingdom comes, which is by dominance and expressing power over. That's not the way that Jesus' kingdom 
will move. In fact, in John 18, 36, the conversation recorded between Jesus and Pontius Pilate uh, hits home this very question as we, we see Pilate is thinking in the same terms that the disciples are, that this is a kingdom just like any other kingdom, and Jesus is a king just like any other king. And so this kingdom will spread in the same way that Rome has spread, by power. But Jesus answers Pilate, and he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Saying the way that this kingdom will operate is not in the typical power structures that you expect. My kingdom isn't of this world. If it were, you'd see it expressed in the normal ways. You'd see it expressed in my followers taking up arms to defend me. And yet you don't see that happening now. And that's not because my kingdom is weak. That's because my kingdom transcends all of what you've expected. That's what we see. That's the mistake that the disciples are making when they ask, are you going to restore the kingdom? Second, uh, they say, are you going to, are you, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this shows the narrowness of the disciples' focus. They haven't yet understood the cosmic implications of the resurrection, that Jesus asked, act as a savior for all peoples, so that this isn't secluded to one nation any longer, but that Jesus' salvation is rescuing people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. There's a transcendent reality to what happened on the cross. When they say, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? They haven't picked up on that yet. They're still expecting just this normal, narrow, national, territorial kingdom to develop. And yet, that's not what Jesus has in mind. And finally, they ask, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. So that at this time, they are saying, are you going to do this now? What we want is a savior who comes in and he overthrows the Roman government and we experience this new kingdom presently, immediately, now, and it happens in a shock, in a moment, so that we can just have it taken care of for us. But that's not the way that Jesus describes his kingdom coming. Jesus describes his kingdom coming gradually, in progression, not in a shock, in a moment. They're saying, we want democracy now. But no, they aren't getting it. Make Israel great again. You've got to play both sides of the fence. <laughs> not just PBS shows. So they're asking, would you bring it now at this time? Three mistakes. Will you restore it? Meaning, will this just be a normal kingdom like we'd expected? Will it just be for us so that our power will come from our proximity to you as the king? Or are you, and are you going to do it now? Jesus, in his response to this question, he gently, the patience is incredible, he replies to every aspect that they get wrong in the question. He says this, Acts 1, 7 to 8. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So firstly, we see that Jesus describes this gradual transition of the kingdom. There's a geographic progress that he's describing. It will first be in Jerusalem, where they are then, then Judea, then Samaria. These are expanding outward circles, then all the way to the end of the earth. This will not come in a moment, but this will be a gradual movement of his people bearing witness to him. Secondly, uh, excuse me, I lost my spot. I shouldn't have changed pages when I did. Secondly, the role of power. Power will not be a political power, but their power will come when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. This will be a kingdom that is moved and motivated completely by the Spirit, so that it isn't just you're close to the king and I'm the invincible king that has this power, and so therefore you will have power over the people around you. Instead, it will be a power brought by his spirit, which brings life where there is death, which is able to, cause, to uh, endure under incredible suffering, which is able to make incredible sacrifice, and that's the way the kingdom will spread. So their idea of power is really turned on its head. This isn't just a normal political power. Instead, this is empowered by the spirit. And finally, this is global. This is not related to just Israel, but this is related to the whole world. Acts 1.8, that verse which says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. That acts as uh, like an outline for the book of Acts. As we see the church begin in Jerusalem and then suffer persecution and spread, they move into Judea and Samaria until the ends of the known world had been reached by the end of the book of Acts. The entire Roman Empire, Christianity had been made known in by the end of the book of Acts. See, this is a global phenomenon. This is a kingdom that transcends what we normally think of as empire. It's not of this world, and yet it does take place here. So, with that misunderstanding of the kingdom starting to be corrected, after Jesus corrects this misunderstanding, we see this, this really strange moment happen where the next verse after this correction is Acts 1-9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, which is like the most low-key way <laughs> of describing someone flying away. Uh, Luke is very understated. Uh, so... First of all, this, is, this probably just feels strange, right? Like, this is the part of the story that when you're a historian and you're looking back, you're thinking, okay, well, that obviously was made up. This is just Luke now transitioning into a metaphorical way of speaking about what happened. But that, that Luke doesn't leave us with that option because twice in the verse, he mentions them, them looking and seeing this. He says, as... When Jesus said these things, as they were looking on, he wants, us, he wants it to be clear that like, this was something that they really saw. This is an eyewitness account. And finally, the cloud took him out of their sight. He mentions twice 
This is something that they really saw. Jesus really did ascend. There was a moment where he was with them, and then he ascended, and they looked on as they saw it happen, and then a cloud took him out of their sight. That's a strange thing. But in that, what we need to see is we need to be able to hold together two things with regard to the ascension. The first thing is the physical reality of the ascension. That Jesus, this physical being who you could walk up to and touch his wounds, really did ascend. And second is the theological implication of that ascension. What does it mean that he rose? What does it mean that he rose to the throne of power? Those two things are what we are going to be holding together. So first off, the physical dimension of the ascension. So it is clear we know from the rest of Scripture's understanding of this that Jesus' ascending to the throne, uh, or excuse me, Jesus' ascension was exactly that, ascending to the throne of power. And yet, it has this physical component to it. So the question is, where did Jesus ascend to? Like, when he goes into heaven, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, where dwelling in heaven, does that mean that heaven is just out there? Is heaven really just up? Like, if we go far enough out, then we'll hit, like, the heaven wall, and it's like, okay, now I've got to trek this way to get to the gate, and then you knock three times for Peter. There's, uh, is that the way that we're supposed to think of heaven because of the ascension? I don't think it is. Uh, N.T. Wright really helps clarify how we can think of heaven. This is one of those things in Christianity that's actually kind of difficult to describe because we have such a concept of heaven that we think uh, is just sort of built into our culture as earth is down here and heaven is up here, and we don't realize that Christianity has with it its own cosmology. It has with it a description of the way things are, how earth is, what dimension we're in, and what dimension heaven is in. Those sort of like sci-fi metaphors actually become pretty helpful in thinking in terms of heaven. So this is the way N.T. Wright says it. He says, first, heaven relates to earth tangentially, so that the one who is in heaven can be present simultaneously anywhere and everywhere on earth. The ascension therefore means that Jesus is available, accessible, without people having to travel to a particular spot on the earth to find him. Because Jesus ascends, we have immediate access to Jesus. We no longer need to travel to the temple in order to worship our God. We don't need any intermediaries to stand in between in order for us to access Jesus, be they maternal or saintly. We can access him immediately because he ascended into heaven. Second, heaven is, as it were, I'm back in the quote now. Second, heaven is, as it were, the control room for earth. It is the CEO's office, the place from which instructions are given. All authority is given to me, said Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel, in heaven and on earth. You see, heaven, Jesus ascending into heaven means that he has ascended to this position of power. Now he is operating as our king. 
All authority in heaven and on earth is now truly his. Therefore, we go and bear witness to him as the new king. The ascension means that he is present everywhere with us. It also means that he is, in this other sense, away from us and over us as king. So this physical dimension of heaven as this other... uh, this other dimension that somehow Jesus can physically exist in. It isn't a ghostly existence, but Jesus is there in his physicality, in his personhood, ruling. There's, that's something that we, that we typically lose, and it has a real implication for how we expect the kingdom to come. Because if Jesus in his physical body can somehow be rolled into heaven so that he is existing physically in heaven now, then perhaps when we pray, my kingdom, excuse me, that's not a good slip. Perhaps perhaps when we pray, your kingdom come, we aren't just speaking metaphorically. If our physical humanity can be folded into heaven, perhaps this dimension of heaven, where God's rule is expressed perfectly, can be folded into our physical reality. Do you see how this, the, the ascension means your kingdom come? This is not just metaphorical language. This is not a pretty way of saying maybe earth will be really nice one day. This is saying actually heaven, the kingdom, God's rule, perfectly expressed, can be brought into our world as we're experiencing it now. That is our hope. This is not just, the ascension means that your kingdom come is not a metaphor. It is a true hope. If he can physically be rolled into heaven, heaven can be physically rolled into our dimension as well. So that's the physical element. The theological ascending is an ascension of position. So when we say that you, uh, when you, when you're promoted, you don't necessarily move into a higher office, right? That doesn't. When we say you ascended to the position of CEO, we don't necessarily mean like, okay, just now that now you're up a floor. Maybe you are, but that's incidental to the new position. The theological implication is that Jesus is our reigning king, which means he's gathered a people for himself that he is king over, and they are bearing witness to his kingship in the world. There's a physical dimension and a theological dimension, and we need to be able to hold together both of those because they both explain how we should be living as the church, how exactly we ought to be bearing witness to our new king. And bearing witness to our king is is precisely the instruction that Jesus provides in Acts 1-8, and it's the way that the angels talk to the disciples that are standing gawking upwards. Now, let's look at how we ought to bear witness. 
In Acts 1, 10 to 11, it says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So disciples standing, looking on, Jesus ascends into heaven, and they're just still standing there. (laughs) Which, listen, it's hard to blame them, but Jesus had just said, go, bear witness to me being the king. Go, move. You need to get to first Jerusalem. You know where you should start? right where you're standing. Then, why don't you move into the next town? And then maybe the town after that. And then the whole world. You've got a lot of work to do. I'm ascending to be king. You be my witnesses. Jesus does his part of the deal, the ascension part. And then his people that are supposed to bear witness are just doing like, oh man, I guess Jesus is gone now. Because they didn't understand what Jesus' ascension meant. They didn't understand that Jesus' ascension meant he's going to give them the spirit that unleashes this incredible power to bear witness. They didn't realize that his ascension meant not just this going away, but an access to him, an immediate access to him anywhere. They didn't understand what they were looking at. And so, God in his grace sends some messengers, some angels to stand next to them and say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who you saw, well, excuse me, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. There's two points that they're making. This Jesus really did ascend into heaven. So don't keep looking. He really will come, he really will come back, but it's not going to be for a long time. And in that space, you have work to do. There's a mission to be accomplished now, which is that you are to bear witness to his kingship. You are to go through the world because he on the cross, you know, purchased a people for himself, which means there are people out there whom he has bought who are subjects of his, king, of his kingship, and they don't know it yet. And so you need to go bear witness and say he is king. And those that come to him will be in his kingdom. But if you don't bear witness, his kingdom will not grow. His kingdom will not be established. You see, in the ascension, in our call to be witnesses of it, we see that our gospel message is not one... uh, is not one merely of you are saved so you go to heaven when you die. Our gospel message is Jesus is the king and he has rescued a people for himself. And your job once you've been rescued is to be his witness in the world, witnessing to this fact that we have a new king, that Jesus is reigning on the throne now. Now, this is, this is kind of a difficult concept to grasp of what it means to have a new king. So I want to wrap up with this idea. Now, I, I get one of these a year uh, that I have to get permission from my wife to use, and it's a Lord of the Rings reference. But the, it's just the best metaphor that I've found or that I could ever, 
that I've been able to think of for what it means that we are called to bear witness to a new king. So I'm going to set the stage. So at the end of Return of the King, not the movies, the books, now if I had any of you, I've lost most of you, so at, the end of, so at the end of Return of the King, the movie, there's six more endings. Um, but then at the end of Return of the King, the book, there is uh, this whole other chapter, which is so long when you think you're done. And what happens is the, the whole gang returns to the Shire where they came from after this huge battle, except for Aragorn, who is now the new reigning king of Middle-earth. So we have a new king on the throne and people that are moving throughout the kingdom bearing witness to this fact that we have a new king. And that's the good news that they're sharing. So they're traveling through a world that's been so hurt and so corrupted by this terrible reign of darkness that has been over it. And there's still the effects of this reign of darkness that are all throughout the world. So they get to the Shire, right, home. And they realize that they thought they would just return home and it would have been untouched, but the reality is it's been so corrupted by these evil forces and by this war that has taken place. And so Tolkien writes this conversation that I'm going to quote uh, between Gandalf and this uh, innkeeper named Barleyman, and so Gandalf shows up, and he knows that we have this new king, and Barleyman just describes how terrible things have been at his inn during this war, how corrupted things have become, how awful it has been with all these evil forces in the world. And here's how Gandalf responds. He says, I expect it has. Like, I expect it has been pretty bad, Barleyman, said Gandalf. Nearly all lands have been disturbed these days, very disturbed. But cheer up, Barleyman. You have been on the edge of very great troubles, and I am only glad to hear that you have not been deeper in. But better times are coming, maybe better than any you remember. The rangers have returned. We came back with them, and there is a king again, Barleyman. He will soon be turning his mind this way. Then the greenway will be opened again, and his messengers will come north. There will be comings and goings, and the evil things will be driven out of the wastelands. Indeed, the waste in time will be waste no longer, and there will be people and fields where once there was wilderness. You see, we bear witness in that exact same way. You know, we move into the world and we hear this incredible despair and we see this incredible pain that we're living with, that we see other people living with, and we hear, of course, it's been terrible. Instead of God being the reigning king of the world, this kingdom of the world has been ruled by Satan because of our sin, who we have allowed to have dominion in our hearts. And the only thing to say is I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been even worse for you. I'm just glad to hear that you weren't even deeper in than you could have been. I'm glad to hear that there's just hope for you now. But there's good news. The good news is there's a new king on the throne. 
And soon, he's going to be turning his mind this way. He's going to come again. The Jesus whom you saw go will come again in the same way that you saw him leave. And when he turns his mind this way, we're going to feel the effects of his kingdom right here, right in the Shire, right, right in Denver. And when we see the effects of his kingdom, there's going to be, where there was once wilderness and suffering, that's not going to be there anymore because we have the right king on the throne. And yes, I know you don't see the effects right now, but it's coming. His kingdom is spreading. That's what we as a church are called to be bearing witness to. In the same way, we have the right king on the throne. And you have two options. You can treat him as king and be a part of his kingdom, or you can continue to treat yourself as king and inevitably be stamped out because his kingdom is coming. But the hope that we have to share is the new king is on the throne. And soon he will be turning his mind this way. So that is our call to witness. When we see the ascension, we see that Jesus is our king and his kingdom is coming. What exactly that kingdom is, that's what we're going to be getting clear on throughout the series. We see our role is to bear witness to it to bear witness to the kingdom of God. So we're going to follow Jesus' teaching throughout these next six weeks, or five now, yikes. I hope you'll stay with us and see how exactly did Jesus describe this kingdom. Something so valuable that if we saw it, we'd go sell everything we had just to get it. What is that kingdom that we're bearing witness to? That's what we're going to be looking, looking at as we continue on. All right, so I'll take some questions. Whoa. All right, that can be good or bad. <laughs> yeah, because this wasn't complicated. Okay, let's pray. We'll pray and then we'll take communion, remembering together the great cost that this kingdom is purchased with. Most kingdoms, the king just sends out his subjects to die on his behalf. The good news is we have a king that died on behalf of his subjects, that he might make them his own. Not even his subjects, but his enemies, that they might be brought into his kingdom, and greater than that, treated like family. In our sin, we rebel against him, and yet amidst that, he dies for those whom he's bringing into his kingdom. That's what we're remembering and bearing witness to you. Our king, the new king, is that good. That's the gospel. So let's pray. Father, I pray that over the course of this series, you would give our church a clarity on what it means to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. That we might pray with a new sense of fervor and expectancy that your kingdom would come as we learn how glorious it is. And Lord, that we might learn to behold the presence of your kingdom in places that we thought it might never be able to break into. Lord, you reign as our king. I pray that we would see you as such and humbly come before you as just servants. 
Lord, you showed the perfect example of that. We praise you, and I ask that by your spirit, we would be empowered to witness to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening. Thank you.